0: In World War 2, uh there were there were US bombers that sometimes had to fly past what's called the no the the point of no return. And they had to do it in order to complete the mission that they were sent out to do. That point of no return to my best understanding that was a term that was originally began in, in with aircraft, these planes would Would, would, means they would burn so much fuel going out that they couldn't return. In, in case of these bombers, they couldn't return to a U.S. air base or to a, to an aircraft carrier. So they were past the point of no return. Maybe they had to fly around bad, bad weather. Maybe they took damage, fuel leak or other mechanical issues and they wouldn't be able to make it back. So they could still accomplish the mission in many cases, but it meant almost certain doom for them personally. They would either have to crash or they would be captured by the enemy. Well, God sent His Son into this world on a mission to seek and to save the lost by, by, by putting, taking the place of sinners, us, on the cross. He's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That's what John said. He offered Himself, He would offer Himself as a perfect sacrifice for sin. Jesus was on mission from birth, yet he lived for almost 30 years in relative anonymity. He first went public at his baptism, but that still was, for the most part, kind of out of the spotlight. John, in the wilderness, it's really here, it's, at, it's in this passage that we see this morning, it's at Cana that Jesus first crosses that point of no return. He knows what this means. He knows what this miracle means. That from now on, the the clock is clearly going to be just counting down until His hour. The cross. His death. The accomplishment of the mission that the Father sent Him to fulfill. There's no turning back after Cana, as we'll see. In fact, He's going to make a quick stop in Capernaum. And then He's going to head straight to Jerusalem. Jerusalem. This bustling center of activity during the Passover and he's going to stand in the temple and say, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. And so he's gonna get right into the heart of it all. So he willingly, he willingly pushes past the point of no return here to finish his mission. He went on to certain death so that we could know life. He went on to be rejected by men so that we could know acceptance from God. He went on to be, to be beaten and afflicted so that we could be healed. He went on to pay the penalty of sin so that we could, could be freed from the very presence of sin for all eternity. And So that's, what, that's what's at stake here in this passage that we're going to look at this morning. John chapter 2 verse 1. Let's read it together. John 2, well listen, follow along as I read. John 2 verse 1. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. So, this passage, as we're going to see, it's not, it's not just a miracle. It's a miracle, but it's not just that. It's not, and it's not here to just kind of tickle our imaginations. It's not for entertainment value. Jesus isn't a wedding performer. This, this is not just a miracle. It's a sign, the text says. It's very explicit. It's a, it's a sign is different. It's a, it's a miracle that teaches, a teaching miracle, a miracle with meaning. It's a miracle that points to something, as a sign does, to something beyond itself. Namely, Jesus and what He came to do. That's what's happening here. And the signs in John are really the backbone of of the whole Gospel account. There are seven or eight, depending on how you count them, of these signs in John's Gospel. And this is the first one. This verse 11. This the first of His signs Jesus did at at Cana in Galilee and manifested His glory. Now, now, as some of the miracles that are signs in John's gospel account, the meaning will be very obvious because it's going to be tied to an exhortation that Jesus gives. So you have in chapter 6, the feeding of the 5,000 plus people. What does he say? I am the bread of life. In John chapter 8, verse 12, Jesus says, I'm the light of the world. And then he's going to follow that by healing a man that was blind from birth. In John chapter 11, verse 25, Jesus will say, I am the resurrection and the life. And then what does Jesus do? He raises Lazarus from the dead. And so he, the sign is, is obvious. Its meaning is obvious in, in these contexts. Here, though, there's no specific word about what the spiritual truth is that is behind this miracle that it's pointing to. And so we're going to ask a few questions this morning of the text to help us see the meaning of this miracle, and so the first question that I, I want to propose and ask this morning is this: Is what in the world is Jesus doing in Cana? What's what's he doing there? Of all places to be, why Cana? What is he doing there? And so we're going to look at the setting, and that's the first thing. Verse one again: On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee. Now, the third day here would be the third day uh, from his encounter with Nathaniel. So probably there were two days of travel to get to Cana. This particular. There were multiple Canas, so it's it's not the, the exact location is not the easiest to discern, but it's is probably Cana that was not far from Nazareth. We talked about this last time, Nathaniel's hometown. But so he goes, and he was there for a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and his mother was there also. And so it, Cana was not a major city. It, we would say it's just a town. It's just a town. Um, it, it was it was. It was certainly more impressive than Nazareth. We talked about this last week, but it really wasn't much. It wasn't a seat of political power. It was not a tourist destination or anything like that. It was just a city. It was the kind of place that you're born, you're raised, you work, you just kind of live the best life you can, and and then you die there. It was that kind of place, and I'll, I'll withhold making comparisons in our own area or something like that. But it's, it's significantly insignificant. You just say that. So the question is asked, why, why Cana? Why kick things off here? Why start here? Why not Jerusalem? Why not Rome? Why, why this simple town Cana? I mean, if it, we have, we're, we're entering into this political season, there will be the Republican and Democratic national conventions next year and, and, and I'm thinking they're probably not going to pick Fayetteville to host either of those conventions where they want to kick off their big campaign or Griffin or Forest Park or any of the other little towns around us here. We may be a high on their list of possibilities. I don't know, but I'm thinking they've probably got a more uh, higher profile city in mind. Well, that's kind of what we're, we're seeing here. It's Cana? Why, why Cana? But I, all I, I would just have to say about that is it fits. It fits. It's consistent with with Jesus. He's the inauguration of Jesus's ministry fits with the pattern that was set. It is an incarnation. The Bethlehem, a manger. He came as a servant. He didn't come with robes and crowns. He came and and and, and made himself low, made himself nothing that we would be. Something So it fits. And now the event that draws Jesus to Cana is this wedding. He and his disciples were invited guests to the wedding. Now whether they they knew this wedding. Whether Jesus had been invited sometime before. And that's why they made a trip to Cana. Or whether they had gone back to his hometown Nazareth. And they were in the area. And someone said hey you come along. And so this was likely a friend of the family. Because again Mary is there as well. Um, But. You just think of this wedding scene, and it's hard for us because we have our ideas of these Western American weddings and what that looks like, and it's a little different in this day. And one of the things that makes it different is because life in the first century AD in Palestine was hard. I mean, really, really hard. I mean, I'm not saying that some of you, we don't have, you don't have a tough life today, you really do. But this was really, Really, a hard life. They worked hard. There were long days before the sun came up, long after the sun went down. It was just work, and and the parents separated from children. They hardly ever saw their kids, and 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 government was oppressive. Taxation was so heavy that if you, if you couldn't pay the taxes, they would just take your uh, take a family member away and forced ensla- enslavement. And it was just, just this oppressive, heavy. Hard life, just eking an existence by for most people, um, especially for the poor, and most people in this day were poor, and so that was there was not a lot of joy to be found, except for those few that that found joy in the Lord. but then there were weddings, and then weddings it all was lifted, that heaviness was lifted for this short period, even for the poorest this was this was the big time, and the weddings would go something like this: there were the friends of the groom would go to the groom's house at, at night, and and would say, "Wake up! It's time to get married." And then they would they would march out of the groom, and they would go to the bride's house, and and the bride and her friends they would they would go. This long circuitous route through the city, and so that everybody could participate and celebrate with them, and they would go back to the groom's house, and, and 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 this is where the wedding the the wedding would take place, and the ceremony would take place, and then and then they didn't go on a honeymoon. No, that no. What began then was this week long, oftentimes feast for friends and family, and really the whole community, and it just was this long social event, this big to do. And so this was this was the happiest time of life. They would never have an occasion like this. The the bride and groom would never have a feast or an occasion like this again in their life, in terms of them being in the center. And this was the bright spot for everybody. There were no there were no there was no Disney World, there was there were no movie theaters or or golf courses or whatever it is that you do for fun and for entertainment. This was it. The wedding was the thing. And and, and unlike our weddings no, Easy ladies, just relax. The groom was the center. <laughs> I know in American weddings, the bride is, the, the groom is like a necessary evil or something like that. He's just, he's just kinda there. Just stay out of the way. But, it, but in, in ancient Near Eastern weddings here, the, the, the groom was at the center and he had to pay for everything. So that's, that's not, I mean, as a father of three daughters, I kinda like that part. Uh, but, but he's at the middle and he's the featured person. And, 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 and again, this is a big thing. It could last up to a week and all the friends and family. And so, and, and and with that, the, the, the thing about these weddings that's different from ours is the guests were the number one priority. This is just true of this ancient Near Eastern hospitality. You had to make sure everything was in place for your guests, that everything was provided. In fact, if, if, if something wasn't made available to one guest that wasn't made available to other guests, that guest could sue the host. Um, and and you could even be jailed for something like that for an offense like that. So I mean, if you come to my house, <laughs> this is what I say: I say there's a fridge in the garage. You help yourself to whatever is in there. And I'm sorry if you, there's nothing you don't like. Usually there's Dr Pepper and expired Diet Coke and some weird co-op drinks that uh, so many <laughs> of us get. And and I may not have what you want. I may not have any sweet tea left, Cecil. But I hope you don't sue me. Um, um, but but this was a big deal in Jesus' day to provide for their guests. And so keep that in mind now and read with me verse 3. When the grape juice, I mean wine, when the wine <laughs> ran out, the mother of Jesus said to them, to him, we have, they have no wine. So that brings us to the second question here. What, why does, why is this such a big deal? What is... Well, we see what, why this is a big deal. But why is, does Jesus care so much about wine at a wedding? What's the big deal? What's the problem here? Now some have called this miracle a luxury miracle. Uh, because you, you think about some of, many of the other miracles. Many of other signs of Jesus. It was, it was healings. The people born blind and, and mute. And the demon possessed. And the lame. And so those are the miracles. And we understand the great value of that. But here... 150 gallons of wine for a wedding. Is this really necessary? Um, well, in a Jewish feast, yes, it was necessary. I mean, we, we've see, seen this already, and it's not so guests could get drunk, but this is a symbol of celebration. And, and in that day you basically had two drink options. You had water or you had wine. And weddings were for wine. This was a. This was to be a feast. It was to be celebratory. And the wedding is here, is about to dissolve into this nightmare. And I'm not trying to hype up the drama. I don't think that is. This was very serious in that day and culture. Again, it could be a lawsuit, and certainly there was just utter humiliation for the host, for the groom, This bride and groom. There would be shame that would follow them for, for years to come. I mean, you know how important your wedding day is, and. Brides here. I mean, that you want everything to be just right. You, we all just cringe. We see those videos on YouTube or America's Funniest Videos of the wedding, you know, the cake collapsing or the groom passing out, and and uh, you know those wedding disasters. And but here, you multiply that feeling that we have about wanting things to be right times a hundred. You're just beginning to get what's involved here. That's the importance of this, what's going on, and the significance of this problem. So Mary becomes very concerned. This might be a a family member or a close friend of of Jesus' family. Mary may have been involved kind of in the planning of the wedding, so she knows what's going on behind the scenes. But she sees this crisis brewing, and what does she do? She goes straight to the person she always goes to when there's a problem. She goes to Jesus. Now, at this point, Jesus' earthly father, Joseph, has probably been dead for, for many years now. Uh, the last time we saw Joseph was when Jesus was 12 years old in the temple. There's nothing recorded after that about Joseph. He probably died sometime shortly after that, leaving Jesus as the one responsible for the household. So Jesus is the one working late into the night in the carpenter shop. Jesus is the one paying for food and paying taxes. Jesus is the one that Mary goes to when she has needs. He's he's the leader. And so when the problem arises, hey, our friend ran out of wine. This is not good. We need to do something. He could go to jail. This is going to bring all kinds of shame on this young couple. What does she do? She goes to Jesus. You no, know, I I think this is more than and, and evidenced by Jesus' response to her, I think this is more than just, can you help us, Jesus, by some ordinary natural means? Can you run to the store real quick and get some wine? That's not that's not what she's saying to him, which wasn't even an option, but but Mary, Mary is not oblivious to what's been going on with Jesus. She's she's perceptive. Mary knew what the angel told, told her about Jesus' birth—that Jesus would be the Son of the Most High, that He would reign on David's throne forever. She knew that. She she remembered, and she knew that she conceived uh, that Jesus was conceived while she was still a virgin. She, she remembered the prophecies of Simeon and Anna over the baby Jesus in the temple. She treasured in her heart and pondered those things in her heart after the incident with Jesus in the temple when he was 12 years old. So she's, she's no dummy. She, and she knows about John's ministry. She knows that he's, what what he said is about preparing the way for the Lord. She knows that John has baptized Jesus. She knows that the Holy Spirit has descended upon Jesus. She knows now Jesus has these disciples that have left John and are following Jesus. So she sees these things brewing. She knows that he's going public now. He's about to. And she knows why he's come. And so that brings us to the third question. As we're just trying to see what the meaning of this miracle is. Is, is why? What does Jesus do then about this crisis? About the wine crisis? What do we, what's his response? Verse 4. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Seems a little rude, perhaps, to us. If later today, Carson, I'm gonna pick on you, I'm using him as an example because he is the farthest one from anyone who would say something like this. But if he comes into the living room and looks at Brooke and starts with a question, starts a question with, Woman, Make me a snack. And I don't mean <laughs> celery sticks. I mean something homemade. Well, then we're going to take a trip upstairs. And we're going to have a little conversation. And say, Carson, you do not talk to your mother that way. Now, again, he would never speak to his mom like that. But Jesus says here, woman. Now, that sounds rude. It sounds disrespectful to our ears. But that's, that's not, it, it wasn't in Jesus' day. And 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 to to show you this in John 19, remember the scene. This is at the cross, Jesus crucifixion. John 19, Jesus is on the cross. He looks down to Mary, and he takes care of his mom by saying, he says, "This is now your son, John." And he says to John, the Apostle John, "John, this is now your mother. You take care of her just like I took care of her." That's basically what he's saying. And the and the word. That he uses there. How does he address her in that moment. This moment of compassion and concern for his mom. He says to her woman. This isn't, this isn't what it sounds like to our ears. He's not being disrespectful or disobedient. It is a little awkward. It is, it is a little abrupt. It does represent a little bit of separation. Between Jesus and his mother. And I think that's the point, And that's what we do want to see here. It may be like saying ma'am or madam or something like that in our day. It's a little more formal. It's a, it's a little bit of a separation. And so when Jesus said, woman, Mary probably was a little surprised. And the disciples, they were probably scurrying around trying to figure out what are we going to do about this wine. They, were, they probably stopped what they were doing when they heard Jesus say that and looked. And so We're going to see how this interaction played out. And So it, it does have, it's not confrontational, it's not harsh, but it, but it is, it's just, it's just, a little separate. and we go on to see what he says. He says to her, What does this have to do with me? And then he looked at his disciples and said, "Let's get out of here. Let's go back to Nazareth. There's no wine left. Let's go on." No, he doesn't say that. He just says, "What does that have to do with me?" He says, and then and then what do we see? Two verses later, this is what's crazy. Two verses later, what does he do? He fixes the problem that Mary, just as Mary was hoping he would. So, so what this is? This little expression. It's a Hebrew way of saying, "You don't you don't understand." You don't understand. Jesus isn't saying, I don't want to deal with that. I've got bigger issues than this. Leave me alone. I've got better things to do. He's saying, you don't, you don't understand. Something new is happening. I'm, I'm crossing a line here. I'm, this is bigger than you're thinking. This is a change you've been waiting for since you've been, been thinking and pondering all of these things in your hearts over these years. This is, this is new. A line is about to be crossed and there's going to be no going back. And then he says, my hour is not yet come. What is the hour? The hour is the cross. It's the suffering. It's crucifixion. It's the climax of the work that the Father sent Him to accomplish. That, that's the hour. Several times throughout the Gospel of John, He says this very thing, my hour is not yet come, my hour is not yet come. And then He's going to say, my hour has come. And then He's going to Calvary. You know, a couple of things just just, if, I was just thinking about this week that strike me about this, and one is this: is that even at a wedding feast, what is Jesus thinking about? His death. I mean, if if this great grand feast and all of this excitement that 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 a wedding represented, if 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 he's thinking about his death there, there are probably not many times when Jesus wasn't thinking about it. He never takes his eye off the ball. He, he, he's not a gloomy guy. he's not a morose person, he enjoyed life in the day to day, and he ate and drank, he, he was, it's what, it, it, Jesus came eating and drinking, he was a friend of tax collectors and sinners, and that was how, what he was considered, and so he wasn't gloomy, but he, he never lost sight of why, why he came, he came to give his life as a ransom for many. So he says, My hour's not coming. That's the first thing that strikes me. Second thing that strikes me is, is just the subtle connection between verse three and verse four. So how do you get from verse three, they have no wine, to verse four? It isn't time for me to go to the cross yet. What is the connection there? I just say it's not as it's not as big of a gap as you might think. I think the logic is this the moment I start doing miracles, people are going to take notice. I'm going to get attention from people. I'm going to get attention from the authorities. They're, they're, they're not going to like what I'm doing. They're going to be threatened by it because they won't understand it. And so my ministry of miracles is going to set in motion. This process is going to lead to conflict. It's going to lead to arrest. It's going to lead to my death. he got that. That's what Jesus is saying to his mothers. I'm not starting the process casually. It's not, it's not yours to the side. This is my father's will. It's his timing. But then you get to verse five. I love verse five. His mother said to his servants, do whatever he tells you. This is like classic mom stuff here. In one ear, out the other here. Um, Mary says, they have no wine. Jesus says, what do you, what does that have to do with me? My hour's not yet come. Mom, do whatever he tells you to do. My boy's going to take care of it. He's got this. Um, and he does. He does. And again, what, what I, this shows that this isn't some kind of confrontation between Mary and Jesus. That's not what's playing out before us here. You know what it really is in a sense? Again, with John, there's always, there's a the, there's the surface, there's a deeper meaning. It's really a confrontation between Jesus and Satan himself. What is he doing? it doing? Your oppression of my people, your deceitfulness, your trickery, your, your enslavement and enticement of my people to sin—it's not going to prevail. I'm going to make all things new. Serpent's head will be crushed. My yes, though my heel will be bruised. My hour isn't come; but it's coming. Jesus, Jesus understands the full weight of this. Salvation is coming. Just, just hang on. And so verse six, he, he does respond. Now there were six wa- stone water jars there. Now six. What does that have to do with it? I think what it's John saying is I know exactly how many were there because I was there. This is an eyewitness testimony here. He says six water jars. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding twenty to thirty gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. So some 150 plus gallons of water that is turned into wine. 2,400 or so servings. A commentator told me that. I didn't figure that out. Um, and he said to them, verse 8, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. Verse 9. When the master of the feast tasted the water now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first. And when the people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. Now, notice how this plays out. Jesus doesn't do anything. He All he does is speak. He's, there's no prayer. There's no forceful command. He's not, he's not. There's no hysterical shouting or some pleading with some contorted face or something like that. Hocus pocus, abracadabra. Binding Satan. It's nothing like that. It's subtle. He just, he doesn't touch the water. He doesn't taste the wine afterwards to make sure that it, that it worked. Water simply became wine. He just does it. And, and notice the groom gets all the credit <laughs> with the crowd. They don't, they don't, they don't know. Very, very few know what really happened. They just go, they just go on parting. So, so we have this, Crisis averted for the bride and the groom and the wedding party, but what do we also have at the same time? Crisis initiated for Jesus. The cross is in his sights. It's coming. It's imminent. There's, he's now past the point of no return here. So what does it all mean? That's the last thing. What 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 effect does it have? What's the outcome? Verse eleven. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Canaan Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. So just four things, four statements, and then we're done. When Jesus passes the point of no return, this isn't the beginning of my sermon, but I'm just saying this is I want to conclude with these statements. When Jesus passes the point of no return here, what happens? First thing, faith grows. Faith grows. His disciples believed him. Remember the purpose of John's gospel. You better because I've said it so many times. And we'll continue to. John chapter 20 verse 30. the end of the book. Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples. Which are not written in this book. But these. These signs. These are written so that you may believe. That Jesus is the Christ. The son of God. And that by believing you may have life in his name. And so Jesus performs this first sign. And what does it say? His disciples believed Him. They believed Him. They believed Him as a result of what they saw in Cana. Now they had already believed. But what we'll see for John is that faith isn't a one and done thing. Now we receive Christ by faith at that moment of salvation. We're justified by faith alone. And that is once. And it's never to be repeated again. But you go on believing more and more and more. The more you see Jesus... The more you believe Him, and that faith in Him and that confidence in Christ is to grow for the rest of our lives. And this is what's happening with these disciples. And this is one of the goals that I stated when we started this series is that what I'm praying for, and what I'm hoping for us as a church is that we will believe more deeply in Jesus every week that we're in this book. That our faith won't be static, but that our confidence in Christ and Him alone will be greater today than it was yesterday and tomorrow than it is today. Every week, I beg God to help you trust Him more. To trust Christ more. To believe what He said. To believe that God is working all things together for your good. To believe that your God will supply all your needs according to His riches and glories in Christ Jesus. Believe that, believe that He has other sheep that are not of this fold and He must bring them also. Let that give you confidence as you go out and share Christ believe that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And give you assurance. Just believe Christ more deeply. So that's the first thing that happens. As Jesus crosses this point of no return. Second thing. Is that his glory shows. His glory shows. Jesus manifested his glory with this first sign. Notice it's his glory. It's not even just God's glory. But it's Jesus' own glory. He's the son of the living God. It's his own glory. It's inherent to him. He takes his mask off in Cana here. Not everybody sees it, but, but those in the know, they saw him for who he really was. That right there in front of them stood the very creator, God himself. Now again, most people in the wedding, they went home that day not having a clue what had happened there. They didn't know a miracle took place. They just knew a great party happened not even the bride and groom they they didn't they didn't get it they don't they don't even know what happened but some were given eyes to see God the glory of Christ displayed in the sign and this is another goal that we stated right at the outset is that I pray that Christ will be bigger and bigger and bigger and more glorious in our eyes and we will see him as great and glorious as he truly is may that characterize our lord's day gatherings that we just busted the seams just, we just can't, we can't hardly contain ourselves to sing of the glories of Jesus Christ every week and to behold him. And, it, and, and, and our Sunday school class, our small groups, our Vision 2020 working groups, our families, our homes, May this are our own devotional lives. May this characterize us. Third, when Jesus passes the point of no return, new comes, new comes. And I think this is the primary meaning of this miracle. That Jesus makes all things new. You notice the specific language. I kind of skipped over this, but I'm coming back to it now. About the water pots. The text says they were used for Jewish rites of purification. Now that's a specific comment that John makes there. That's a little indicator. That's telling. The Jewish purification rituals were very involved. I mean, the last books of the Mishnah, which is like kind of the oral Jewish traditions that were recorded in these books, it contained 126 chapters on purification. Judaism in Jesus' day had become this religion that emphasized external cleansing and rituals, but but often the hearts of the people were far from God. This is the case, that... It had degenerated a long way from what was that heart of the Old Testament teaching. And it was an empty, hopeless system, just a system that was bogged down by minutia and traditions and external rituals and regulations. And if there was little in it that could help a person who truly wanted to know God, that was not the case. It was really just a collection we could say of empty pots, just empty pots. But Jesus came to change what was empty and useless, and to to give to bring something that would give life and joy. I think that's the really the meaning of this. The one commentator said this particular miracle signifies that there is a transforming power associated with Jesus. He changes the water of Judaism into the wine of Christianity, the water of Christlessness into the wine of the richness and the fullness of eternal life in Christ, the water of the law into the wine of the gospel. That's how the Gospel of John began in the prologue. The law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Jesus transformed that deadness of uh, religious ritualism into this new wine of relationship with Him. It's personal. Is your life, is your religion, is it empty? Is it dead? Is this just cold, lifeless, habitual rituals. That's not a fault with Jesus. That's not because, it's not a problem with Him, it's a lack of Jesus in your life. And this is the last thing. When Jesus crosses that point of no return, joy is extended. Joy goes. Jesus is the joy giver. And, and, and again, I don't mean this in just some superficial trite put on a happy face kind of way because Jesus was not that way. Again, he, he knew he, the cross was in his purview all the time. Yet there was a, a deep abiding joy in him. Jesus isn't a wet blanket on this marriage feast. I mean, think, man. I mean, I know how it is as a pastor. If I show up to a party, everybody's like, oh, man, shoot. <laughs> this is just going to get boring. And... uh Jesus is not like that, and I hope I'm not either. But um, he, he he keeps he keeps the party going here. He, he, when visit when he visits a place, he makes it better by his presence. When he visits a church, it's better by his presence. When he visits your home, it's better by his presence. If he's in your life; it's better by his presence. Life without Christ is a wedding without wine. And 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 Jesus makes here water into wine. And again, in Scripture, wine is associated always with joy and gladness and celebration. It's symbolic of that future messianic kingdom. Just get ready, folks. It's going to be wine. There's not going to be drunkenness. There's going to be wine and it's going to be flowing and there's going to be abundance of it over and over in the Old Testament. That's a promise that's made. But what Jesus does is He extends joy. Extends joy. That is not stopped. It will not stop. Know if you're empty today, Christ can fill you up, and and that awareness of that emptiness, that awareness of lack of joy, is, is God's grace to you. you're better than most. You're better off than most people. Most people won't admit that, won't see that. But but in that in that sense of lack, in that sense of neediness and emptiness, from that place, Jesus is able to fill you and satisfy you, and He can. He can because He pushed past this point of an no overturn and He went all the way to the cross, and He went. He didn't just stay dead. He rose from the dead and He gives life, life, abundant life to all who believe. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I pray that we would come to know, to really know that life that You give us. We would have life in Your name. That we would see Your Son, Jesus, as He truly is. As glorious as He is. Full of grace and truth. And that we believe more deeply in Him so that we could have life in His name abundant life eternal life may you may that grow in us today we ask in Jesus name amen